I would always say that you're better off having a complete planning application and waiting that extra one or two weeks to get everything together and lodged as a complete application. I think it goes to your credibility, but it also assists the planner who, remembering they've got 30 other files to pile through, if everything's there instead of things coming in bit by bit, it makes their job a bit easier as well. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello and welcome to episode 40 of the show. As always, I'm delighted you're joining me. I trust you are well. Today on the show, we are going to be talking planning with a highly experienced planning consultant and I think you will pick up lots of tips from our discussion. Before we get into that, here's what I've been up to recently. I've been doing some due diligence on a site that I know quite well, and it's been fun going through all the things that need to be ticked off as part of that process. One of the big ticket items for this site is finance. So I've been speaking to a lot of people about funding and options to secure the site and pay for the initial planning costs. This is a tricky pathway as there are so many options and ways to do it, all with different costs and issues to work through. Hopefully I can land the deal and get another project in the pipeline. I've also been working on some things behind the scenes of the show to help make it bigger, better and stronger, and I plan on sharing some of those changes with you in upcoming episodes. Okay, on to today's guest, consultant town planner David Crowder. David has more than 25 years experience in town planning. He specialises in statutory planning and providing expert evidence before Victoria's planning tribunal and planning panels forums. And as you will hear, David was an expert witness we called in our failed VCAT case. So we share a few battle scars. Planning is obviously a critical phase of a development project and the outcome of a planning application really sets the course for the project. So getting it right, or at least getting an outcome you can live with, is extremely important. And I, of all people, fully understand that now. David and I discuss why town planners are important, ways to avoid making planning mistakes, and lessons David has learned along the way about how to deal with councils and objectors, and the many other challenges that pop up along the way. I started off by asking David what food he would eat until he was sick, and we both share the same dirty secret. Fried chicken. KFC. Oh, the dirty bird. It is, uh, it's just my weakness. As much as I know how bad it is for me, if I get a smell of that, it's uh, very difficult to resist. <laughs> is that one of those little secrets that you just go and grab a meal and hope that no one ever finds I try, out I try not to, but my wife will go and get it for the kids and I'm going, do you want something? No, no. And I'll come back and go, we just got you some wicked wings. All oh, right, all right. <laughs> I'm in. So, yeah. Well, you're the first person who's uh, admitted to liking KFC and <laughs> going for fried chicken. That's it. Yeah, I've got a soft spot for fried chicken as well. I just had some on the weekend, actually. Not Did the you? Dirty Bird, a Korean, a Korean venue, so it's a little bit more reputable, but yes. at the end of the day, it's still the same thing. Yeah, all good. <laughs> well, anyway, we're here today to talk about planning, mm-hmm. and my relationship with you is that you represented, or you, you uh, acted as a witness for us at the VCAT case that I lost that my listeners will be aware of and we might touch on that later on in the discussion. But can you tell us about how you got into planning and we'll explore what planners do? Yeah, sure. 
Look, I fell into planning. I actually didn't know what I wanted to do at school. Um, I wasn't good at maths, and a mate of mine said, I'm doing planning, you can get into Melbourne Uni without maths. I thought, that sounds good. Um, my family is real estate, and uh, so Crowder, John G. Crowder Real Estate, it's big, or used to be big on the Mornington Peninsula. And my brothers had both just gone into real estate, and I just was really resisting that. And quite enjoyed geography. It all sort of stacked up managed to get into Melbourne Uni and um, still having absolutely no clue what it was about. Um, did the course, got a job, and you just sort of learn on the job, really. But uh, So I, I fell into it. I had no major desire to be a town planner. didn't even know what a town planner was. And give us a little bit of your sort of trajectory of your career because you're a director now at a pretty big consultancy. Yeah. You obviously didn't just arrive here. Yeah. Uh, I started in local government down at the Shire of Hastings, um, and quite a few of the people down there are still going, down there at the, um, um, now the Shire of Warnington Peninsula. Uh, so that was handy because I'm from Mount Eliza down that way. So that was good. And look, I, I think every planner needs to start in local government to learn the system, but also to understand how the system works in terms of timing. So in terms of being a good consultant, you can advise in terms of timing. Uh, got poached by the guy who resigned as director down there, Jeff Nicholl, and he went set up Insight Consulting in Frankston. That didn't do so well. I was doing some local government sort of placement work for Ringwood and Croydon and um, Cranbourne at the time, and um, I then ended up getting a full-time job at the what was the Shire of Cranbourne, um, became the city of Cranbourne and then the city of Casey. So all my local government was sort of down there in outer urban areas. Uh, for all sorts of reasons, ended up going to London when I was uh, about 33 and worked at the London Borough of Hackney for two years. So that was my first inner urban sort of experience. It was a bit of an eye-opener, but it was a lot of fun. I'm a former uh, City of Hackney resident Are you? many years ago. No way. Well, you know, that's kind of interesting. It was actually amazing just how inefficient the whole system was over there. You could do half a day's work and still do more than, than, than the others. But um, that was really good experience. Came back to Melbourne in about 2000. Casey heard I was back, so I contracted there, met my wife there. Um, and um, then Ratio heard about me and um, approached me. And So I've been here 17, 18 years now. And so is it a case of... When you jump across the fence, you go from being the, I guess, what a lot of developers would consider the council planners to be <laughs> the sort of bad guys. Yeah, that's right. From doing what they want to do to being on the, the good side of the fence. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there is this thing about changing to the dark side. but And it, it is quite different because in local government, invariably, you're sort of very procedure-driven. Um, you're restricted by the processes, and so it's the politics and, and the rest of it. And I think you do develop a bit of a tick box mentality. Um, so it's sort of glass half empty, whereas you go into consultancy, you look at glass half full. It's not saying things that can't be justifiable. Um, we're pretty principled on that sort of thing. Um, but uh, it's looking on, on the positive side of things and um, seeking ways to justify the positive side of things. So it is, it is very different and it takes you a long time actually to change your mindset, 12, 24 months to even stop writing like a local government planner. Um, but, you know, that grounding is still useful. So, well, Let's try and be... Some, well, I'm going to try and be a little bit balanced. <laughs> okay. 
share with us what the local, the, what the council town planner is like, what their life is like, from professionally speaking, in terms of how they would view yeah. applications and the challenges that they face. Look, um, having worked there for 10 plus years, um, I still have some sympathy for local government planners. Invariably, they're under-resourced and they're overworked. And um, when you get to the point where you have so many files, you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, you just tend to um, go th- methodically through things and just fall into a, to a sort of a system that... Um, is difficult to get out of a bit of a rut and it's really um, just sort of working through things as they come but uh, not um, trying to work um, a whole lot harder because you do that and people think you're good they'll give you more work and so it, it can happen that you just sort of stay under the radar and do what you've got to do. Now having said that there are many many good planners that, um, that I think do go beyond the norm and you know, the irony is is that when we get aware of planners who do that, who are proactive, who look for solutions, not problems, we target them in terms of um, employment. And so that's the other real problem that local government has is that there's a real drain of their talent because um, they're very attractive to consultancies as well. But, you know, like I said, there's a lot of politics um, I honestly used to think that um, coming out of local government and going to consultancy, it just couldn't be any harder than what it was in local government. Um, you've, got, you've got your boss, you've got the permit applicant, you've got the objectives, you've got the politicians, all these people calling you all the time, hounding you about decision. I'm thinking, how hard could it be to just go and have one client, um, you know, the guy paying your bills? It's, what I realise, it's a different type of pressure. When people are paying your bills, they have different expectations. But So, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. I think for local government planners, I have a lot of sympathy for them. Actually, can you take us behind the curtain a little bit, I guess, from a council planning department? Yeah. When an application comes in, what happens? Well, what I used to do, so when I was a team leader, is um, it would come to me, I'd have a look at it, I'd say this is suitable to this person's experience and I would usually write notes on the file saying these are going to be the issues, look out for this and that, hand it over to the planner. Um, once And look, that might take 7 to 14 days. It goes to the planner. They've then got um, 14 days or whatever it is up to the 28-day period to, to have a look at it and to say whether or not they need additional information. Um, so, look, you know, different planners approach that differently, but as now on the consultancy side of things, invariably you will get an additional information letter because that sets their statutory clock back to zero. Um, I would say a lot of the time it's unnecessary, but it's part of the process. And because planners are now being judged on um, uh, appeals against failure and how many statutory days, you know, you can't blame them in some respects for doing that, and that's why it happens all the time. It doesn't matter how complete your application is, you can pretty much expect you're going to get a, a section, you know, an additional information letter. So, so anyway, so they'll send that out. You'll respond, and that's when they decide on advertising. Usually, will be advertised. That goes out. In the meantime, they're meant to refer it out to all the statutory referral authorities. They're meant to refer it out to all their internal bodies so that at the end of the advertising period, they've got all this information together to then make a decision. Um, then in terms of whether that's a delegate decision or a council decision, that will depend on, on which council. Some councils say one objection off to council. 
some say six, some say 12, whatever. It, I think it would be useful if there was uniformity amongst all of the councils in terms of that delegated authority, but um, there isn't, so really it's just a case-by-case. Yeah. I think it would be good if there was some consistency across the whole Victorian or certainly Melbourne planning system, David, but yeah, no, that's another great bear of mine, whether <laughs> or not count, local councils actually deliver any value, but that's a discussion for another day. Sure. So with the length of time that it takes, are you better off just getting an application in to get the clock ticking? Without having a complete package, as it were, because I know you can. There's all sorts of reports that you yeah. can have, but are you yeah. better off just getting a concept plan in or a town planning plan yeah. scheme in and get the ball rolling? Look, unless there is a deadline that you know is coming up, like the introduction of the new zones or something, I would always say that you're better off having a complete planning application and waiting that extra one or two weeks to get everything together and lodged as a complete application. I think it goes to your credibility, but it also assists the planner who, remembering they've got 30 other files to pile through, if everything's there instead of things coming in bit by bit, it makes their job a bit easier as well. So I, I would always say that if you can, you know, look, and there are reasons why you can't sometimes, but if you can, a, a complete professional application is preferable. All right, and then what about this idea of planners being local area experts? So we're talking about the consultancy side now, not the council side. Yeah. Do you become a, an expert in a particular municipality or mm. are, you more, are they generalists? Look, I think one of the good things about consultancy is that you can do all sorts of different things all over Victoria and some people go beyond Victoria as well. We don't. Um, but invariably, you are drawn to areas for all sorts of different reasons. And so, for example, if you used to work in an area, then you're a bit of an expert for that area. So a lot of, you know, for example, the former City of Melbourne planners, they're sought after because they have a really good understanding of what's happening in the heart of Victoria. Um, there's also just the case that where the investment is is where your work is. And so you tend to gravitate to where the money is being spent, where the redevelopment is sought to, to occur. So again, that will take you to certain hotspots. So I think you do develop a, a sort of, you specialise um, in those sorts of things. But like I said, I mean, I, I enjoy, for example, doing a poultry farm out near Bendigo as much as I do in doing a mixed-use development in Chadston or whatever. Um, that diversity is, is really a good part of the job. <laughs> <laughs> hadn't really thought about uh, consultant town planners going out to do poultry farms but oh, I guess they, yeah. they would well the, you know the, the meat industry and particularly the chicken meat industry is just going nuts and they're also exporting so they're actually it's reasonably complex these um, broiler farms because they stink um, and therefore you know buffer areas are important they're also they're big and they generate a lot of activity so they're interesting challenges yeah. And you weren't having a Pavlov's response with the around the poultry farm. I was getting KFC involved. <laughs> Can you just explain how the planning system is designed to work in a sort of in a holistic way? Yeah, look, basically at the end of the day, um, to do any use or development in, let's say, Victoria, um, it's governed by an act. And most of the stuff you want to use or do um, doesn't need a permit, but there's a lot of stuff that does, and that's the Planning and Environment Act. 
and that creates the authority for all these planning schemes that you find throughout the um, throughout Victoria. It's the planning schemes that put a zone on all land, and under those zones, that says what you can and you can't do in terms of land use and development. And um, they also then, where there is discretion, so where you need a planning permit, so they can say you don't need a permit, you do need a permit, or it's prohibited. Um, but where there is discretion where you need a permit, the idea is that those planning schemes give you some direction as to whether or not the council should or the decision maker should exercise that discretion. And so um, just because it's permitted doesn't mean it's appropriate. You then need to undertake a sort of a contextual analysis to work that out. But that, that um, in a broad sense, is how it works, that you all use and development is subject to the Planning and Environment Act. And so that's a state act. Yeah. And how can that's been delegated down to a local council level? Well, I think um, because just in order to actually do the work, it would be difficult for a state body to do all of that planning and development work. Um, the MMBW used to do it to some extent, um, but that's long gone. But that was an example of where you did have a state-ish sort of body, delegated body, to do all the planning. Um, the decision was made that it needs to be delegated down to the local level and to give the local councils ownership of what goes on, where that becomes... And that's fine on local issues, but where it becomes problematic is if you have something of state or metropolitan importance that happens in a council um, and the council doesn't want to take that responsibility, they're more, lo they're more concerned about the local politics. That That's where you get problems and that's where the planning system as it is is problematic because for, for whatever reason, for example, if Melbourne Airport um, seeks to, to increase, that's of state importance, but the local council, Hume, I think, thinks, no, we actually don't like that because that's causing noise to our residents. You get that sort of conflict and that's where you need the sort of the higher level state intervention to push these things through. Bad example because that's actually Commonwealth land and then so that's sort of determined. But other things like, I don't know, I'm doing something in Tyab, for example, the Tyab airfield, um, there is state and regional advantages in having an airfield there, but it's causing issues for the local population. Ten residents complaining has a bigger voice than one airport operator, and the decision-making tends to go that way. Yeah, well, I think it's structured that way, so the state government has these sort of decisions at arm's length and yeah. doesn't necessarily get held accountable for them. Quite possibly. And if they do get referred to a tribunal... Blame them. Blame the tribunal. Yeah. But anyway, we'll come to tribunals in, mm -hmm. uh, in due course. And so what role do you play in helping clients navigate, I guess, navigating through mm. the, the vagaries of all those schemes? Yeah. Well, I think initially we, we provide guidance in terms of what can realistically be achieved. And so, for example, if a client comes and says, I'm interested in this property, um, we'd like to do this. I mean, part of our job is to look at all of the layers of planning controls and say, yes, whether you can reasonably seek to do that or not. If they then pursue it, our job is to help them through the planning system to achieve the best outcome for them. Um, and look, a lot of the time, um, you know, I don't know if this is acknowledged a lot, but a lot of the time we're telling um, clients what we think they need to hear, not what they want to hear, and trying to temper their expectations. And you know, we just figure that you, you're better off telling them that up front, and we make a point that you have to, 
Um, it's not to say that you don't push for more, but in terms of, um, for example, a client then deciding, oh, well, right, we're going to pay this much for a site, it should be based on what we would consider to be a realistic expectation of the development potential of that site. Um, and look, as I say, it's not to say you don't push for more and um, where there's a case to be done, you should as well. But uh, um, that, in terms of managing expectations, I think that's pretty important. And, and then guiding it through the system, doing what you can to get the best possible result for the client. And so are there particular areas that you like to focus on in the scheme or when you get a, yeah. something that comes in from a client yeah. that you start ticking the box in nah, terms look, of priorities? And this, well, look, the starting place for anything is uh, context, the context of a site. So when a client says, oh, you know, I want to do a 10-storey development on this site, um, you look at the existing planning provisions, but where it's really complicated these days is there is invariably a study or an amendment or something underfoot as well. And and you, you normally need to go three or four steps backwards before you can go forwards <coughs> to to identify the context of a site. When I say the context, that's its strategic context in terms of what all of the planning policies existing and proposed say you can reasonably achieve in an area, and then where it's relevant looking at the existing context as well. So there will be cases, for example, um, where uh, the strategic context says what's there now is irrelevant, we want something that's very different to what's there. That's really important because it means that you're not limited to the, the existing character or amenity expectations of neighbouring properties. But if you don't have that strategic sort of support and guidance, then you do have to respond to what's there at the moment. So, um, But that's the first thing that I would do is... Uh, check out one if is there discretion under the controls if there is discretion what is policy existing and proposed saying in terms of what you can achieve and um, and that should then inform what you call a site responsive design yeah well i guess we've both got a wry smile on our face that you uh, can't see through an audio medium when we're both thinking about my site yeah i mean look we can Feel free to kind of we can talk about that where it's relevant, but I mean I felt that we had that strategic context. Yeah. Um, so, but in the end, we were overridden by yeah. the neighbourhood character. Yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, so on your site, it was in a DDO and in an area where policy said this is where we want new, more intense housing of two to three storey scale, including apartments. Um, and we want to achieve a new built form character for the area. And that was really important because in terms of then ad advising or forming an opinion as to whether I could support your proposal, um, you're able to say, okay, what's there at the moment is residual one-storey dwelling stock with traditional building materials and roof forms and some you know, unremarkable two-storey new townhouse development. But this is seeking something higher. This is setting the bar higher and saying you can do more and go higher in intensity. But if you can't get past that hurdle, if the tribunal doesn't agree with that, then and you come up with what we did, which was a, quite a contemporary um, two-storey townhouse development, and they start saying, oh, it doesn't respect the existing character of the area, then you're just on a different page. And I, I maintain that the tribunal got that fundamentally wrong, but at the end of the day, you as a developer now have to deal with that decision and respond to it. And the tribunal, unless there was a point of law they got it wrong on, the decision is the decision. So um, that, that was a very difficult decision to stomach. Yeah, so which it's always important to have that strategic 
support, mm. but then you also need to have the more granular tactical elements, right? When you're proposing a scheme, that's a lesson that I learned anyway. Right. Fair enough. Um, and so, are there parts of design that you look at when yeah. you're reviewing a proposal or an application? I mean, is design yeah. part of your purview as well? Yeah, it is. Look, as planners, we I think there's a decision that says we know a little about a lot, and that was something that one of our directors in here, Colin Peterson, did. So we, we do dabble in, in design as well, although there are experts out there that only do that, so urban designers. But... For me, when I get a brief on a site, I actually won't look at the plans. I'll look at the context and I'll get our site plan and go and I'll draw on it and I'll say, this is what I think you can reasonably achieve on the site. Then I'll compare that to what's proposed. And part of that will be the design, but certainly really you're starting off with an envelope to work out um, what could reasonably be achieved and then you start adding the third dimension to it in terms of its height and its design response as well. But as planners, yeah, part of it is to, to look at the, um, the language of the architecture and see how that's responding to its context. I'm having a bit of a chuckle because there's a little bit of mathematics involved in town planning, isn't there? Percentages of land that needs to be used for open space and yes, heights of walls set back off boundary minimums of you know, two metres off the boundary, it has to be five metres high. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Thankfully, it's not complex mathematics, um, so I'm able to deal with that. <laughs> well, now that I've touched on it, I wanted to get your views on the planning changes that have taken place across Melbourne, which is maybe irrelevant for some listeners out there, but uh, the state government introduced mandatory private garden space uh, across new developments in Melbourne, which mm. meant that 30% of the land needed to be set aside for private garden space, just not including driveways. Correct. Garden area. Garden yeah. area. Um, just wanted to get your thoughts on how that's mm. rolling out across Melbourne and how developers are responding to that. Yeah. I think you've almost got to go one step backwards to see where this has come from. And this is where the state government overnight introduced density limitations. So this was um, a Matthew Guy initiative. And, um, and, so, and then left it to the councils to decide where they were going to put these zones. And I think the original intent was that the neighbourhood residential zone where you could only have two dwellings and a limit on the height was only meant to be applied in areas where there were really special character um, limitations I maintain that density is actually irrelevant to character, but uh, nevertheless, that was the intention. But then if you hand that over to the likes of Burundara and Bayside and say, OK, you apply it where you think, well, in, in a system of um, um, local government politics where there's um, a resistance to change, uh, of course you're going to seek to apply it as slavishly as you can. And that's what occurred. So when the new government came in, there was a lot of... Um, um, unhappiness with that and, and everyone saying we need to get rid of the density provisions, or at least we were, um, and I think a lot of you know the segments of the development industry were. Um, Minister Wynne, um, I think, had to, in responding to that, had to give what was probably understood to be a win for the punters out there as well. And so in agreeing to get rid of the density requirements, and I maintain that's very positive, it was never appropriate, but it's, it's, a, it's a good outcome, 
He then um, put limitations on height, mandatory limitations. So that's where you've got the two storeys basically in the neighbourhood residential and three storey in the general residential. But he came up with this new concept of garden area, and um, which really just came out of the blue. It came out of none of the recommendations of any of the expert reports that he asked for. But that was his way of saying, okay, I've taken away density, but I'm protecting um, the ability to achieve good garden space and came up with these figures of 35 30%, whatever it is, based on site area. So, I mean, again, we're, as ratio, we're quite outspoken in terms of its um, inappropriateness and um, we just keep running into issues where um, it's frustrating development. But I think where it's really frustrated development is, ironically, what it does is encourages apartments. And that's not, that's not a bad thing, but apartments have their place. And um, by basically saying you can only, for example, 35% garden area, it's encouraging you to have a basement for starters. So you don't, you're not going to have above ground parking and um, driveways that um, extend outside the building envelope because it's just taking up too much of your site. So um, basement car parking and apartments above is what it's encouraging. And as I say, that, that's fine. And... Um, it's good in terms of housing diversity, but a lot of people don't want to live in an apartment. And so the, the types of development that are really suffering are the townhouse and sort of traditional sort of side driveway, attached or detached houses and leading down the side of a property. And there are, there are companies out there, development companies that we work with, that are now really struggling. They, they um, specialised in what we call reverse living, so where the, um, the living areas are at first floor and balcony areas. Um, not dissimilar to what was proposed in, in your development. Um, but uh, it's very hard to do that economically now because this concept of a driveway and a built form is tending to take up more than that percentage of garden area. And you've got to ask yourself what for. I mean, I think everyone's in furious agreement. Yes, where it's appropriate, you need to have a strong landscape response, but you don't need it mandated to say it must be 35%, which just crazy it takes away from design flexibility and i think it's limiting design typology and ironically you know a lot of downsizers so you think of your parents they'd like a townhouse they don't like apartments for whatever reason but it just can't it can't be done and so i think it's it is frustrating development yeah it seems to be taking a sledgehammer to crack the walnut it's the one size fits all approach across a really large metropolitan area. I agree. It got rid of one mandatory provision and replaced it with another. And, you know, I, I sort of maintain that um, I understand people want certainty, but um, mandatory provisions are a, a sledgehammer approach to a peanut and just don't allow for that design flexibility. And I think it's, it's bad policy. Well, I think it's limited developers' ability to respond so you've very much got a cookie-cutter response now to a site. Yeah. So if a site's 1,200 square metres, 1,500 square metres, 2,000 square metres, yeah. well, there's a maximum that you can get on there. Hmm. So you've got seven, eight, whatever it is, well, then that's what the response is. That's what everyone can put on there. So yeah. you're going to end up with pretty much the same stock yeah. across these blocks. Yeah, it's true. Look, the only upside is we understand, we've heard a whisper that there is some review going on and there may be an announcement soon about it. Um, so don't hold your breath, but there may be some relaxation. Yeah. You know, for example, if, if it was discretionary in the general residential zone, that would make sense because why should it be the same in the general as opposed to the neighbourhood? But uh, 
we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, I'm glad you brought up that word discretionary uh-huh. because the schemes tend to be filled with some uh, words and descriptors that aren't uh, definitive. Things like preferable, may. Yeah. Um, does that give you wiggle room or is that just a sort of government way of kind of steering where the response should go? I mean, it does give you wiggle room. So where there is discretion, it means that um, it's obviously a relevant consideration, but you've got to balance it up with everything else. Um, And look, there are people who don't like discretion because they want that certainty. But, um, you know, as I say, in my opinion, discretion enables better site-responsive, innovative architectural responses than would otherwise be the case. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, there is, and it's probably frustrating to to the average person out there that, you know, there are some um, fairly loosely worded provisions and they can be totally at odds with another provision in the same planning scheme. And that's where this, ultimately, the test is net community benefit. And so you've just got to weigh up as best you can the competing interests and come to the conclusion of whether or not the community would ultimately, the community being the broader community, would benefit from this being approved, notwithstanding that it may be contrary to some other provision in the planning scheme. Well, sometimes that can work in your favour and other times it can be problematic. That's true. I guess it keeps you in business, doesn't it? Exactly right. (laughs) (laughs) And so what um, questions should developers be asking planners if they're thinking of taking them on or getting assistance from them? What's a good way of determining whether they're Uh, worth their salt or not? Yeah, look, I think... Logically, I mean, you'd, you'd ask, are you familiar with the area and have you done this sort of development before? So we get a lot of that saying, you know, we're thinking of putting on, can you show us examples of where you've done a similar type of development? So I think that's probably important. It's not the be-all and end-all, mind you. I mean, you can get up to speed on things, but I, I think it probably does assist if you've had some experience in things. So that's, that's one thing. Experience with the council, do you know the council officers, how do you get along with them, that sort of thing. Look, it's just helpful in terms of introductions. You don't get any free kicks with any of this stuff, but if you're able to call someone who you might have worked with previously or something, that's always helpful. Um, So I think they're probably the main things, knowing that they've got the capability to do that type of work. Look, from a developer point of view, I would have thought, does this seem like a reasonable person? Can I get along with this person? Do you know what I mean? would be reasonably important as well. You're going to be fairly intensely sort of involved with these sorts of things. Um, relationships with the other people as well that you're going to say so invariably you're going to have an architect probably sometimes you know traffic engineers urban designers and those sorts of things and look just a spruik ratio the fact that we're the only firm out there that has planning and traffic engineering and a lot of clients like that because there's obviously the synergies there's the efficiencies to be obtained by that and look invariably we're asking each other questions all the time so it's it's, it's a handy thing to have but um that aside, whether you've worked with whoever the traffic engineer it is, whether it's Ratio or Cardano or whoever, um, that, that can be of some assistance to the developer as well. I wanted to ask you about having a relationship with a, or doing work with a, a lot of work with a particular council. Mm-hmm. Is that a, I sometimes wonder whether that's a, maybe a drawback from a client perspective. If yeah. Your yeah. planner doesn't want to rock the boat with 
the council because they do so much work with them and they don't want to yeah. upset the contact that they have or the planners that are in there. Yeah. Is that just me projecting my own views or mm. are, they, are, are they? Are you all particularly objective and you go and fight the good fight when it's yeah. need to be had? Yeah, I could understand that that um, might be a consideration. Um, I think the reality, the sort of the way we would operate, though, is that the person that you know would understand that you've got a job to do, and there's a way to um, try and make a point. There's a good saying: um, tact is the art of making a point, but not making an enemy. And and that's the thing. I, I would, for example, if I knew a planner particularly well, would say, "I'm sorry to hassle you. Um, I understand you're really busy, um, but we really need an answer on this matter." Um, you know, the clients, the clients hounding me, and it's been a while. Can you get back to me if you can, sort of thing? And and it would be wrong to think that a friendship would get you a decision that you wouldn't otherwise get. That's just wrong. But I think it, in terms of the the communi- open lines of communication, um, that can really assist. I think. You know, for example, and I won't name names, but if I've got someone who says, "Look, we appreciate what you're saying, and you know, we understand that it has merit." I can just tell you that the political agenda in here is that this has no hope in hell. You're better off appealing failure and getting in the queue. And you'd really want to know that sort of information sometimes. You just don't want to be flogging a dead horse. And um, that, that sort of um, uh, open lines of communication can be handy. Uh, look, I, I, I could think of some circumstances where the client wants, wants you to go really hard and you've got a working relationship with the council, particularly if you're doing some work with the council. Um, but I think it's really, it comes back down to the managing the expectations of the developer. And if they're wanting you to flog something that has no credibility, you've got to tell them. And if they still want you to do it, our policy here would be that we don't do it. And we'd say, look, we can't because there is no credibility to running this argument. Um, so, um, but, you know, I can understand that there might be a fear that you go soft because you're mates. But I, I don't know. I think everyone's mature enough on both sides of the fence to know that We've all got a job to do. Yeah, I've been in some planning meetings with uh, my consultant and the council planner, and he was asking some very nice surgical questions yeah. <laughs> to sort of probe and yeah. also get a point across. So when you've got people who can do that, it's certainly beneficial. Oh, look, it's a real art. And that's the thing, is it um, banging your fist on on um, on the desk and... Um, being rude to planning officers, I found, it's never put your file at the top of the pile, and um, um, you, you've got to respect the fact that, that you know usually they're uh, they're pretty flat out and have hard jobs themselves. Mm, all right, I'm trying to remember that in the future. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, then, what planning questions should developers be asking before securing a site? Well, look, I think really you've got to ask yourself first of all, can it be done? Um, so we have had examples of where people have bought sites and then said, this is what we want to do, and we just say, well, you can't, it's prohibited. Um, you can't do it. So that would be an extreme case. I'd say most developers are smart enough not, not to do that. Um, but then the next question is you know, whether that's a realistic um, expectation in terms of what you want to do. So if you bought a site and you say, I want to do a 10-storey mixed-use development in this site, check the zone, yes, check the policies, They'll give you some guidance. Look, the policies are saying five to six. You could push for more if you do this or that. 
Um, but if you're doing your figures, do it based on you know the five or six, and the rest will be cream. That's how we'd recommend you go about it. It's really getting that advice in terms of whether what you want to do is permitted and realistic. Okay. And have you been involved in any tricky cases or interesting cases that have hmm. brought up interesting questions or interesting results? Yeah, look, I mean, planning's evolving and things have sort of changed over time. So as you know, that um, wasn't that long ago, um, Saddleback sort of bedrooms and borrowed light was a big issue. And we really championed that and wanted to get to the bottom of it by actually having a look at examples of these things. Um, and we organised bus tours for actually for VCAT to go and have a look at some um, what they call saddleback or snorkel um, um, bedrooms in a development and also borrowed light um, where you don't have any external windows to bedrooms, those sorts of things, but you have these sliding glass doors. And um, so that was just interesting and proactive way to go about it. And the feedback that we got a lot of the time was, wow, it's not as bad as we thought, you know, but the reality is that a lot of the VCAT members hadn't seen them and had never lived in an apartment and so really wasn't aware of, you know, the sort of the amenity trade-offs that you have when you live in a different type of housing. So that that's all um, been quite interesting. I guess I was involved in a big case in the city, Will Street, where um, somehow a development had been approved with balconies all um, abutting the south side of, of a development um, and that was their primary access to light and um, that was their amenity space. And it, look, it turned out that it was a, an error. Somehow plans were endorsed and they weren't meant to be, go figure. But um, we then had to, our client had to respond to that. And this whole issue about daylight has something that's really just emerged in planning. You now have daylight experts who are probably making a killing because it just comes up all the time. But there was this concept of not daylight levels, but daylight amenity. And as a consequence of that development, we were able to design proximity with proximity to those to those windows and say, whilst the daylight levels will reduce, the daylight amenity won't. So at the moment, your room is so dark, you're going to have to turn on a light to read a newspaper. That won't change. But what we will do is that we'll paint the wall and reflect light down there, and we'll put in a, uh, we'll give you a daylight easement to ensure that that space is protected in the future. And if you want to put more windows on your side wall in the future, you can because it's protected. So it was just sort of an innovative way of sort of addressing this issue that's becoming more and more. Getting back on the... Uh, so the, does that mean the term daylight robbery was called? <laughs> no, I think that was around. <laughs> mm. But, you know, it's becoming, it's becoming a big issue, and understandably, because, you know, all these towns that are going up again are pretty new stuff for Melbourne. It's really the last 10 years where it's all come up. Um, the other thing, that when I was talking about poultry farms, I actually did a huge goat farm application and uh, recently because there's huge demand for goat milk products. It was going to be a dairy, and um, which was news to me, but I don't know if you've had goat's cheese. It's actually beautiful, but the market is... Um, is actually for the baby powder that's produced in China. So this huge, huge industry that wanted to establish out the back of Geelong. I'd never heard of Q fever, and but apparently it's something that goats can contract and can be passed on to humans. And just as part of that application, the tribunal gave what I'd call a good refusal, if there is such a thing, but it gave very clear direction in terms of what needed to be done. But it identified that there was... Um, a real gap between all of the different government agencies in terms of who dealt with this issue of Q fever. So 
that that was um, that was a bit different. Um, more recently, Capital Grain we've done in um, South Yarra. So that's it was an interesting development in terms of the planning scheme. Said we're not going to put a height limit on this site because we want something that is a landmark to South Yarra, but we want a really high quality landmark development on here and. So it was actually an interesting process where the council said, we'll give you height, but you've got to give us a world-class development. And, um, but even so, there was still a limit in terms of how high you could go. So judging that height and ultimately getting that approved, and that'll be, that'll be an amazing development. I mean, you think at the moment when you look at South Yarra and you can see buildings that identify it, this is twice their height. So it'll be quite an amazing development in the future. That's the Larry Kesselman development. And it's a bit controversial at the moment because he's after a heli um, pad on the roof and so it's getting a bit of press. I don't know if you've heard it. but uh, So it continues to, to be um, quite topical. Mm. Oh, trees. What about trees? Yeah. Planners get involved with trees or... Yeah, yep. It's always sort of kind of another one of my uh, bugbears around the fact that yeah. councils seem to own the trees that are on private land. Yeah. Look, I think... Again, with trees, you need to look at the planning scheme. So if the planning scheme says you need to protect and maintain trees, then that's a potential constraint. Um, and that's that's on your site. So typically you'd look at a site and then you'd balance that up. If it happens to be an area where the council also wants a lot of development, then you know logically, unless the trees are right in the extremities of the, of the site, that's where you can reasonably say... Um, look, we need to remove them, but in balancing that, this is where you want more housing, but we'll provide a new generation of landscaping. Those trees were suitable for a single house. They're not suitable for a multi-unit development. What we're going to put back, though, will, in time, um, go to those landscape aspirations. Where people come out and stuck, though, is trees on neighbouring properties. And VCAT's pretty clear in saying you may be able to remove your own trees but you shouldn't be able to adversely impact upon the health of someone else's trees and including street trees are becoming a bit more of an issue as well so the advice to a developer would be that don't only look at the trees on your site you need to look at what's near your boundaries and you need to get some uh, boricultural advice in terms of tree protection zones because that can also impact where and what you can develop on your site Okay, very good. Let's move to tribunals. Mm-hmm. Preparing for a tribunal, uh, something I've had to go through now with you. Yeah. Um, how do you go about preparing for a tribunal case, both from a developer's perspective and from the consultant's perspective? Yeah, so I, I only do expert evidence these days. So typically, you'll get a phone call saying, are you available for these dates? Yes, can you receive a brief? Yes. You get the brief and they want to know whether you can support it with or without changes. That's always a bit awkward because it can take a lot of time to do that and you're not on the books at that point. But um, I, I think what I try to do is still have a bit of a look at it and give some direction and at least say, if I can't say yes or no, say, I think it's substantially acceptable but I'll need to look at A and B and C. I can't do that until I have a look at the site. I'm not going to do that until you pay me. Um, but then... Uh, Look, part of that stage is really important for a consultant because you then need to say whether you can or you can't support it, and if you can't, what adjustments that you'd like to see done on the plans. And at that point, the developer could say, okay, that's interesting, thank you, and 
and not be happy with what you're recommending. And that, that's, that happens a lot, actually. And that's fine. That's, that's part of the system. But from your own point of view, you've, you've got to call it as you see it based on an analysis and your experience with those sorts of things. And ultimately what you're trying to do is um, um, achieve a built form that will get a permit. Um, and so that's a really important part of the stage. If um, it doesn't need changes, that's fine. If you can't support it, that's fine and you tell them. Um, if you require changes, there's then this whole process with the, you know, the architect and the, and the legal in getting those changes done. Have they gone far enough? Yes, no, and all that sort of business, and the plans go out. Ten working days prior to the hearing, you've got to circulate your expert evidence. So that's uh, um, in terms of um, time management, you've got to be really aware of. And look, the difficult thing that I find is that you, you get your evidence statement out, get sent out, you literally put that whole matter aside because you've got about another five statements to get out before the actual hearing comes up. And by the time the hearing comes up, that stuff's all kind of back of mind and you've really got to refresh. And someone once told me never underprepare for a VCAT evidence because the day you do will be the day you come unstuck. And, um, and I never have um, and I never will underprepare. You've got to prepare, prepare, prepare. And so my, my routine is to, I'm normally up at five that morning, cramming from five till um, nine when I, if they want me in at 10 or longer or whatever it takes to make sure that you're ready for the VCAT hearing. Um, and so to any budding planners out there, that would be my advice. You need to be all over it. Because I wish our uh, landscape architect had followed your advice, <laughs> David. Prepared, yeah. prepared, prepared. Yeah, well, you know. So that, that's what I do, and, um, and I sort of stand by that. I mean, the, the fact is that when you, when you get in there, you can talk with much more authority if you know your stuff. And if you can talk with that authority, you actually find that the questioners can sense that as well and probably back off a bit. But really, at the end of the day, it's, it's putting your evidence statement aside and saying, these are the three main issues and this is why I came to the conclusion that this is acceptable and usually just trying to limit it to a few issues and running through that to assist the tribunal in its determination. But it's over-prepare is, is the way I prepare. I thought you performed very strongly in the tribunal, which was comforting to me, but ultimately fruitless. To no avail. To no avail. But yeah. it, it was interesting to sit there and hear a professional explaining their take and their view on the design and the impact on neighbouring properties, sightlines, yeah. areas of process. It was just interesting to sit there and listen to that. Yeah. I mean, look, there will invariably probably be furious agreement over what the principal issues are, but planning is subjective, and so different people can legitimately have different views on what those impacts will be. And I guess, you know, my role is to explain to the tribunal to assist them in how I came to the conclusion that that was an acceptable response, not the best necessarily. It doesn't have to be the best. It has to be acceptable. And... Um, yeah, so that's just part of the joy of doing expert evidence. Now, I asked my barrister, Andrew, this question after we walked out of the tribunal about how much impact he felt having witnesses had on the decision. Yep. So I'll ask you the same question. Um, it should have a big impact um, because... Your, um, your opinions are tested through cross-examination 
and um, and I think that gives a lot of should give a lot of credibility to um, what you're presenting. Uh, I do sometimes question it because the tribunal at the end of the day is a uh, what they call a, a um, expert tribunal so they consider themselves to be experts in everything as well and you know I've had a case where there was no opposing traffic evidence and a tribunal member took it upon themselves to form a different traffic view to what the traffic experts said that was just unopposed at the time and so that just goes to show that um, um, different tribunals, I think, will give different weight. I think it's particularly helpful for the more junior members. I think the more senior um, um, tribunal members, I suspect, have a fairly entrenched view before they walk in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's not a bad thing because it means they're prepared, but um, you, you still need to be open-minded enough, I think, to be able to listen to the pros and cons. Someone once asked that question to Stuart Morris when he was a VCAT member and they said, have you ever changed your opinion from what you had before you walked in based on evidence? And he said, absolutely. And so, you know, take some heart from that. <laughs> well, I just think councils generally rock up with a consultant town planner who stands there and reads the report or their submission and then rests their case. Yeah. And the developer's has to engage all these expensive consultants to put their case forward. Yeah. I just wonder how, how much impact it really has on the member making the decision at the end of the day. Yeah. Look, you know, and it depends on the case. So, I mean, plenty of the stuff I do, the council rocks up with the QC and the, and the experts as well. So you do sort of have those opposing experts, opposing opinions. Um, your, your development... Um, uh, I, you know, there is, there is a scale where you'd say it's overkill... And um, there's a scale where you'd say, it's, unquestionably, it's necessary. Um, I didn't think it was overkill in your in your case um, because it was reasonably big, you know, development for that context. Um, but uh, it, it's a difficult decision that you as developers have to make because it's your one chance, and you've got to try and preempt what your opposition's going to come up with as well. And for all you knew, Stuart Morris could have worked in, walked in or Chris Canavan could have walked in as your opposition. And that's happened to me, where we just thought, yeah, it's just going to be a council planner and a neighbour who's objected. The neighbour happened to be best mates with Chris Canavan and he came in and, you know, had a good crack at cross-examination. So you just don't know, but you can't... I, I would say, when in doubt, do go, go the expert legal route. Yeah, well, that was my thinking. You only get one crack at the title, so you need to give it your best shot. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I have to go back to the gym and work out a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> the best shot wasn't enough. Um, all right, so what's your top tip for developers out there? Well, I think um, they need to understand the system and they need to understand, have some sort of realistic expectations. And those two things need to be managed most developers, once you've done a few of these, you understand the system and you understand it. But I think, um, you know, newcomers need to understand that if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. It's not. First of all, you've got to secure the site. So I gather that's that's a big battle in itself. But then you need to um, you need to be realistic about what you can achieve on a site. And you know, to to do that, you. You don't always have to because, you know, people can look at things themselves, but I think it's a good idea to get some advice. And um, 
look, sometimes this is where it's difficult. It might mean um, having to pay for advice prior to securing it. So I, I know that's that's difficult, but we get it all the time. Where um, we we get you know many phone calls daily saying we're thinking of buying this site. You know, can you tell us what we can do? And it's difficult because the clock's not on for that sort of stuff. And um, but you know where we have. Um, um, good relationships with clients, and we know that you know you'll end up sort of getting getting the work. Then you do do that sort of stuff. So um, get the advice, but in doing that, develop relationships with consultants who you get along with and who you trust and you think are knowledgeable of those areas, and um, and make your decisions based on that. So I think that that's the thing is to be informed. Mm. How about handling objections? So managing, well, not managing, dealing with neighbours, whether they be supportive or particularly when they're not supportive? Mm. Got any advice on how you go about doing that? Yeah, look, I think there's a planner's take on that and then a developer's take on it. And um, we're sort of blissfully ignorant about what developers may or may not do in that regard. But I, I, I think I think that there is a lot of sense. If you've got a neighbour who's objecting to something, you as the developer actually having a chat with the neighbour and saying, what can we do? What can we do to appease your concern? And, you know, I mean, uh, I've heard, I remember a service station that we're doing somewhere where the developer went next door and said, what's your problem? It's going to devalue my property. How much is it going to devalue my property by? This much, right? So if I give you this much, we would... Yeah, and, you know, there would be people who'd frown upon that. But, look, that's ultimately something between you and the neighbour. And if you can come to some private agreement and it's not illegal, well, good luck to you. Um, from a planning point of view, we'd always say engage um, if you can. But if you get someone who, you know, who it's just obvious that they're opposed to any change, you're probably wasting your time. But um, uh, where you can sort of sit down and try and liaise, you know, the alternative is to go through the long, expensive, all the uncertainty associated with a with a hearing. And um, you know, it might be you might be better off actually cutting a deal and and running with it. What about concerted campaigns? Because you're seeing this more and more now where you get uh, suburbs or organisations within areas who are opposed to inappropriate development, they would say. Mm. And how do you deal with a large group? Well, it's, it's difficult because um, they're usually sort of change over my dead body sort of things. And so it really is hard to negotiate with them. But... In terms, if you were going to do it, you'd need to find out who the leader of the organisation is. You'd need to be sure that they speak and can make decisions for the organisation, and then see whether there's any middle ground. And look, and if there is, see what you can do. But you, you, there's no point having one person going, "Oh yeah, that's fine," and then finding out there's a few stragglers in the organisation. I mean, you're, you're dealing to get rid of the people in terms of their um, their objection to your application. Um, that's the only grounds upon which you should be dealing with them. And if you can't get someone to represent the organisation as a whole, you'd have to question, you know, the merits of doing anything. Okay, we're getting towards the end of our chat, so let's switch gears a little bit. Talk about people who've influenced your lives, or if you could sit down and have a meal with any three people alive or dead, who would they be and why? I've got to say, that's one question that threw me. So all the planning stuff... Um, I'm good with. 
Um, I've, I've actually never thought about it, and it was sort of weird. Look, I lost my dad 25 years ago, and I was sort of a young adult, and a lot has happened in my life since then. Um, dearly love to have a child with dad. So there's one. Uh, otherwise, you know, I had a good think about it. Someone like Richard Branson I think would be really interesting. One, because I think he seems like a nice bloke, and so it wouldn't be... Um, wouldn't be too stiff the conversation. I reckon you could have a beer and have a good laugh, but clearly his knowledge of business and enterprise would be quite amazing. And then I struggled again. Catherine Zeta-Jones is who I came up with, not just for her acting prowess, but she's one of the most beautiful women in the world. So because she's hot, I wouldn't mind having a, wouldn't mind having a lunch with her. Oh, well, that's a pretty good mix. <laughs> pretty good. And then tell me about the challenges that you face as a director of a large planning consultancy. So you've got a few arms. Mm. What are the sort of challenges you face? Look, it's a good question because we're going through a growth phase. So when I came to Ratio, there was um, two people in planning. One left and then the other one sort of worked remotely. And I'd only done local government and I was expected just to do planning and consultancy planning. And I found that really, really hard. Um, it wasn't until um, we had two people sort of leading planning that were able to look at growth, and that was Colleen Peterson, and she came across, and she's the um, CEO now here. Um, and once you get that sort of depth at the top level, you start building your teams. And so we've now got five planning directors. There are um, four traffic directors, three traffic directors, and... Um, and with that growth comes... Are traffic directors or directors of traffic? Oh, they're, they're directors at ratio and they happen to be traffic engineers. <laughs> yes. Um, but look, this whole sort of growing pain from growing from about 25, which we were for years and years and years, being able to um, thankfully pick up some exceptional people from Cardinal, so um, Steve Hunt, and um, who's really well-known traffic engineer, um, Aaron Wally, um, Hilary Marshall, those people that allowed traffic, which had always sort of only been at a certain size to grow as well. And once you get above 25, then all of a sudden the fun begins in terms of, you know, uh, all the computer systems, all of the people systems that you've got to put in place. And so we're actually, we've only been in this building for um, two or three years. We're moving because um, we've, we've grown that quickly and we have uh, additional growth aspirations and we're pretty much um, full here. And so we're moving over to Cremorne in a purpose-built building, five storeys. We don't own it, but we're, we're leasing it long-term. And So in doing that, we've had to bring on um, a director, actually, to deal with just the business development side of things, um, who has his own staff underneath him. So things get a whole lot more complicated and what you realise at the point where we're at is I've just got to let go. I'm used to being involved in all decisions, but I can't do that and I can't do my job and keep a family life. And uh, so something had to give. Bringing in people who specialise in those things is the way to go. So, yeah, the really, um, uh, really big learning thing that I've had is that I'm a town planner I haven't been trained in business development and you realise as you grow how little you know. You learn as you're going, but ultimately still people are engaging me to do town planning. I don't care whether you know I'm in charge of um, staff, you know, social functions, all that sort of thing. So, uh, so it's having to actually develop 
corporate systems, which we've done, we're finding that it was very inefficient trying to get all the directors in one room at the one time. It was next to impossible. So we've had to set up executive committees um, and all, all sorts of things, which report to a board, and we've now got board members. So we're really at that turning point of being a sort of a, a small, medium-type company with aspirations to get bigger. Mm. So it's, it's interesting times. Well, it sounds like it's going well. It's always better to be growing than yeah. not. Well, that's it. I mean, as planners, you got to you got to you got to plan for these things, and yeah, it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen in terms of the industry, and there are lots of variables. But um, with the the really important thing is that we we figure that we have a good culture at Ratio. It's not a super corporate um, um, culture, and it's yes, really very important. Board to shorts us. and pants. <laughs> <laughs> and my beer? Did you want that other beer? Or <laughs> Um, yeah, and so maintaining that culture is really important. Um, it's it's a challenge, but if you're conscious of it and you work really hard at it, and that's that's why we have Touchwood, um, very little staff turnover, and creating opportunities for the guys coming through to be directors and understanding that that means you've got to sell down, you've got to sort of um, increase the directorship and all of that sort of thing. That's just all part of the challenge, but something we're yeah excited about. So if you're growing, that leads me to think that the industry across Victoria and specifically Melbourne has probably grown, which given the amount of development there has been over the last five to ten years, that yeah. doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Just as from a broad citywide perspective, and this is very Melbourne-centric, what you're seeing out there from a development and particularly a sort of residential market. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of going on in the west. There's yeah. a lot going on in the north. Yeah. But from your macro planning perspective, with lots of clients, what are you seeing? Well, I'm seeing a need to provide housing and in the right locations. And you know, so this is all driven by population growth. And you know, so you guys know that you're not going to build it unless you can sell it. And um, and we continue to have um, you know big increases in population that we've got to accommodate. Um, so, you know, honestly, you're seeing stuff in the city and even in some of the activity centres in the middle ring and outer suburbs that you just wouldn't have contemplated seeing 10, 15 years ago. So I, I kind of think it's exciting, um, providing we get it right. And I think there are lessons to be learned about all the towers. I think they probably were too close. And, you know, coming in now and sort of establishing what the separation distances should be and all that sort of business is, is good. There needed to be a correction. There needed to be some correction and guidance given in terms of living areas and, and room areas and all that sort of thing. I think most architects would say that's that's been a good thing because it was just being pushed too hard. Um, so look, it's all it's all pretty exciting, I think, in terms of the metropolis. The thing that really upsets me is um, the transport systems, and so the Monash Freeway is my nightmare every day and night. And other people experience their own nightmares on their own arterial roads. And it's just really disappointing that the things like that weren't done in advance of the population coming. And it's just a fundamental failing of our systems where it's all subject to short-term political decision-making. And that stuff should have been planned years in ahead and it should have been depoliticised and funded and provided now. And, uh, and, you know, I think people can go look at planners and the industry and go, you've got that part of it wrong. And, look, in response to that, I'd say I think the plans have been there, but the politicians have to implement the plans. And it's, it's just our 
system of short-term sort of um, political uh, tenure that I think has led to this. And um, it, look, I, I wrote an article not that long ago where I went to China, a, a client, a good client, um, funded a few of us to go over there to have a look at it. And we'd see cities that before the people moved in already had undergrounds, already had um, bullet trains, already had magnificent parks and all sorts of things. And their system, which is the opposing end of ours, enables them to do that. There's no way you could do that over here. Um, but the problem here in our system is you've got to wait till there's a problem, till enough people start moaning to give it some political bite, then it will be done. But it's just always a bit too late, and that's, that's not good planning. Well, we wouldn't have that show, Utopia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if that was the case. Exactly right. <laughs> Wasn't that what that uh, department was set up to solve? Exactly right. <laughs> set up the strategic plans? Yeah, I haven't seen enough of it. I've only watched a few, but it was very funny. <laughs> <laughs> very close to the bone when I worked in government watching that show. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> All right, well, where can people find out more about you or about Ratio if they're interested? Uh, just on our um, website, so ratio.com.au. Um, I'll have some stuff on there. I'm not great at updating my CV, is the truth. So, um, But, you know, in terms of the sort of work I do, you could do a VCAT search or whatever, but just, I think, the website. We are, you know, trying to get out there more with this sort of thing, I suppose, but in terms of social media, I don't get it yet. That's my um, one of my um, aspirations for this year is to sort of embrace it and get it. But, um, you know, so that's, again, it's part of the de- business development side of ratio, is to tap into all of those things and, and be be a voice for things that we think are important, and that's that's important to us. Well, as long as you're finding the good fight for property developers out there, David, you'll always have my support. <laughs> well, there you go. Look, the truth is that we do do local government work. I mean, the thing is that we um, we do often get asked to give evidence um, for, for councils and things, and look, if we can support it because we think that's right, that's the way it is, but 99% of what we do is, is for developers. I'd like to thank you for taking the time to be a guest on the show. I really appreciate you sharing everything with us. I'm very grateful to you. Not a problem at all. Thank you. Thank you for being on the Property Developer Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks, Justin. Okay, there you go. A wide-ranging discussion on town planning. I hope it helps you to achieve a permit sooner on your next planning application. In some ways, I find the planning process a bit like dark magic. Unless you are doing a simple cookie-cutter approach to the site with lots of precedence in the area... There seems to be a witch's brew of ingredients that go into a planning decision and you never quite know how it might turn out. There are a lot of moving parts and a lot of variables, particularly the human emotions that may get stirred up along the way. Anyway, here are three lessons that I took out of my discussion with David. 1. Consider the strategic policy support and context of your site. This is the bedrock for how your application should be viewed by the council planner. If you are proposing something well outside the policy context for the site, then you will have little or no chance of getting a permit. But if you stay within the expectations of the policy, you should be okay. Though not always, as I found out the hard way. Unfortunately, sometimes there are competing elements within a policy context, such as encouraging growth, but still respecting the neighborhood character, and that's where tension is created. And in our case, character won out. 2. Be aware of any proposed changes to zoning in your area. Planning zones seem to be pretty dynamic, and councils are forever tweaking and amending parts of their suburbs, so be aware of impending changes. 
This could impact on what you want to do and how a council planner may consider your application. They may also have one eye on the future state of the area and informally assess your application through that lens. I know in our case, there was a change to the area's zoning that came in after we submitted our planning application, yet the local councillor, who was not in favour of our proposal, made mention to the planning scheme changes that came into play when he knocked us back. And I think it also weighed on a decision by the tribunal member in supporting the council's decision. So be ready to adapt to changes that may be coming. Three, try to avoid ending up at a tribunal. Having picked up some scars and bullet wounds following our planning tribunal loss, my advice to you is try and avoid going there if you can. In some ways, it is a lottery as to the result you get, and it certainly slows down your momentum and takes up time. That's not to say that you should seed more than you are prepared to, but be aware of all the risks and costs. If you can, try to work with council to get a permit you can live with. In our case, the council planners were supportive of our plan, but it was the councillors who were against it following the number of objections from all the locals. Okay, that's all for this episode of the show. Thanks again for joining me. If you enjoyed that planning chat, then delve into the archives and listen to episode 20 with town planner Craig Christie, where he provides some planning tips for property developers. Or episode 12 with developer John Marquez, where he talks about his failed trip to the planning tribunal. You can also find all the past episodes of the show at www.propertydeveloperpodcast.com and you can see all my latest property development photos and videos on Instagram and Facebook at Property Developer Podcast. So until next time, may all your development applications get permits quickly. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.